Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Would you use these moments we have together in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Amen. So when I was 10 years old, I was invited to go water skiing. And uh, how many of you have ever gone water skiing? Could I see hands? How many of you have never gone water skiing? So for those of you who have never gone water skiing, uh, I went out with four other guys and uh, one of my friends went twice. One guy loved it so much he went three times. Uh, and it was finally my turn. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And I did not want to do it. I wasn't raised on the lake. I wasn't used to it. And for those of you who've never water skied, you've got a thing on called a life jacket. And you get out of the boat into the water. And there you start to fit your skis on one at a time. So this usually happens to every rookie. So you start to put the right one on or, or the left one. You know what I'm talking about? You're already ahead of me. You start to put the right one on. As you put the right one on, you start to put the left one on. And as you're putting the left one on, you know what happens? The right one comes off, right? So meanwhile, the boat is going around me in shark-like fashion, and they're screaming at me for about 45 minutes, relax, relax, relax. And I'm a 10-year-old kid. I weigh 62 pounds, and I'm getting more and more nervous every moment that they're screaming at me. So finally, here's what they tell me to do. They're like, oh, shine, here's what you do. All you have to do is really simple. Once you get your skis on, which took me like 30 minutes, okay, once you get your skis on, put them just straight up like that, okay? And then grab the rope handle, and then with your other hand, wave, go. Now, 10 years old, this is complicated. So finally, I, 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 I wave, I, the boat starts to pull me up, and I start to, I eventually, I'm like kind of stuck in like a small, like a catcher position. I finally get up, and all of a sudden, I'm feeling very relaxed. But all of a sudden, it starts to, it starts to yank on you. As, you know what I'm talking about? It starts to pull on you. And so I see these guys going like that. And I'm like shark? And I'm like, what? And they're like, go over the wake. Well, I don't know how to do that. So all of a sudden, you kind of you leap over and you go over the hump. And then all of a sudden, they're going like that. And that means go over the wake again. So I do that. And finally, I hit something and I went flying. I, it might have been hippopotamus. I'm not sure. But I hit this thing and I went flying. And there's one big problem. They did not tell me one big important fact. They did not tell me to let go of the rope. So this thing is pulling me, and I'm like, dear, 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 dear. I'm sucking air, and I'm sucking wind, and I'm 10 years old, and I'm thinking, no, I lay me down to sleep, and I think I'm going to die. And finally, when I let go of the rope 75 yards later, I realized two things. Number one, my skis were gone, and number two, my swim trunks were gone. <laughs> it's not funny. Even the fish went Yuck. But do you know I was 10 years old and it took me seven more years to get the courage to water ski again? And when I was 17 years old, I did it and I did not lose my swim trunks. You know why? Staple gun. <laughs> Just teasing, Father. Do you know that fear um, got me? Fear kept me for seven years from doing something that I could be doing. Fear has an amazing power to paralyze people. In fact, in a recent study of 3,000 people interviewed on what is your greatest fear, 41% said public speaking, 22% said going in deep water, 11% said dogs, they're fearful of dogs, 
10% are fearful of driving in a car. 9% are fearful of riding in a car driven by a dog. <laughs> and 8% are fearful of elevators. Now, in a book, uh, a book called Ridiculous Phobias, let me see if you can guess a few of these. Uh, tight spaces is called what? Thank you, claustrophobia. The fear of spiders is called? The smart crowd here. Blenophobia. The fear of slime. I'm sure that some of you struggle with that. Dentophobia. Fear of dentists, yes. Yes. Venestrophobia. How about this one? The fear of beautiful women. And here's your last one. Liposlupophobia. Liposlupophobia. This is the fear of being pursued by a timber wolf around a kitchen table while wearing socks on newly waxed floors. <laughs> Father, you struggle with that, don't you? All of us face fears. And in the gospel reading, not once, not twice, but three times, we see phrases like, they were afraid, they were terrified. Now, the text starts with the word immediately. Immediately, Jesus sent them. And you have to understand the context of what happened before these verses. In the start of chapter 14, Matthew, Jesus' dear friend, John the Baptist, was murdered, was beheaded, and then he immediately goes into working a miracle that we call the feeding of the 5,000. And so Jesus has kind of got this, these emotions going of losing a dear friend and then seeing a, a, an unbelievable amount of miracles happening. But then he needs his introvert time. Jesus is the most perfectly balanced human being. He, he knows when to be with people and he knows when to get alone. And so the Bible says he goes to the mountain and he starts to pray. And meanwhile, the disciples, he's sent them out in a boat and they've been out there for quite a while. And they're, they're fishermen and they're Jewish fishermen. And so they know what their rabbi wants from them because whatever the rabbi does, the mentoree does. Whatever the rabbi does, they do. And so they, if the rabbi prays, they pray. And if the rabbi teaches, they teach. And the rabbi preaches, they preach. And they, the rabbi does a miracle, they do miracles. And so they've learned as Talmudines, as students of Torah and as students of the rabbi, many of these young Torah-following people, they, they not only knew Scripture, they had memorized much of it. And so some of these guys that have been following Jesus, some of them actually very uneducated, most of them fishermen, but they're used to fishing, and they're used to winds, and they're used to storms. And so, meanwhile, somewhere between three and six in the morning, the text tells us a, a storm emerges, and it starts brewing higher and higher and higher. And one of the texts says that Jesus starts to walk on water. And according to biblical history, we don't know of anyone who's ever done that. We know that Moses never did it, Elijah never did it. The prophets didn't do it. But here Jesus is walking on water. One text actually says in another gospel that he actually walked by the boat. Now, if you are Peter, who is the loudmouth disciple of the group, chances are he wakes up and he's kind of looking around and going, dudes, did you see that? See what? I saw someone walking on water. It's like, bro, you've had too much Jerusalem wine. No, 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 no. I saw someone walking. Oh, no, who could it be? Yo, Jesus, Yeshua, if that's you, you tell me to come and I'll come. It's nothing. Come. What? All of a sudden, the Bible says Peter 
gets out of the boat and starts walking on the water. Because what the rabbi does, the mentoree does. You see, this story is so surprising to you and me, but it wasn't surprising back then. Because Jesus modeled to his followers that whatever I do, you can do too. In fact, later on, he says, he says listen, after I, after I die and resurrect, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and greater works will you do because of me. But fear gripped Peter once he got out on water. I don't know about the 11 guys, but I think that they're thinking intuitively, like the kid who's playing basketball, he's five years old, he's out there shooting, and he's imagining hitting the winning shot. I don't know if they're rooting for Peter or not, but the moment Peter starts to struggle and starts to lose focus, and the Bible says he saw the wind. I don't know how you see the wind, but he saw the wind. He started to go under, (laughs) and he was starting to really go under, and Jesus picked him up, and he's kind of like, I don't know if Jesus kind of like held him longer, you know, but he picked him up and threw him back in the boat. And I don't know if the disciples were going, ah, what a loser. Probably not. I have a feeling that they were thinking, I could have done that. We could have done that. We should have followed Peter out. We could have gotten out of our boat, and we didn't because of fear. And in the Greek language, Jesus says to Peter, why did you second-guess yourself? Why did you doubt? So the guys are sitting in the boat, kind of looking at each other, maybe looking down at the, down at the bottom of the boat, thinking, what just happened here? I'll tell you what just happened. Peter got out of the boat. And the 11, what I call the 11 original boat potatoes, you know, they stuck in that boat. They're in that boat. They love that boat. It's a pretty boat. What kind of boat are you in today? When I was in middle school, Robbie, I don't know if you would have liked me or not, but uh, I was uh, a Jewish kid and, and, and trying to figure out life and my parents sent me off to a Jewish athletic camp, which what we would call in my town an oxymoron, two terms that are incompatible, like jumbo shrimp. And, and so I went to this Jewish athletic camp, and I was okay. Most of us Jewish kids aren't that great at sports, but I tried. And I came back, and my parents uh, informed me of something that night. I'd been away for camp for six weeks. It was a great camp. You're away from your parents. Your parents are away from you. It was a great deal for everybody. And I'll date myself here a little bit, but we were watching the original Mission Impossible. Does anyone remember the original Mission Impossible? This was a day that there were only three TV channels. You remember? NBC, CBS, ABC. There were no remote controls. I, the kid, was the remote control. My dad said, would you go turn the TV off? And I said, sure. And he proceeded to tell me, your mother and I are getting a divorce. And it was like someone got a a knife and cut me open. I ran out of the room. I I cried half the night. I tried to talk my parents out of it. My mom said, uh, the next morning, we're moving. And I'm thinking down the street. We lived in the same house, same neighborhood, same school system. She said, uh, we're moving. And I said, where? She said, Cincinnati, Ohio, where her mom lived from Nashville, Tennessee. And I said, where? She said, Cincinnati, Ohio. I said, oh, Bengals. Uh. 
But I was so mad and I was so ticked off at my parents and I was so broken and so hurt that when my mom and I made that journey to Cincinnati, I didn't say one word to her the whole trip. I was so hurt and so bitter. And I began to cover that bitterness in high school with partying and drinking and things that I'm not proud of. And I grew my hair down to here and and my favorite word was wow. And, and And I got busted for pot not once but twice. And It was in my senior year of high school, an African-American friend of mine said, uh, come to my my church. And I said, well, I'm Jewish, We 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 don't do that. And he said, well, just come to my church and see what you think. So I got in there, and then here's what I noticed. There were 600 African Americans there, 600 African Americans, and one white Jewish honky right there, me. We were there four hours. This is not a four-hour service, is it? <laughs> He's definitely, definitely not. We were there four hours. And I left that day spiritually jealous for what they had. I didn't know what they had. But it took me a long time because of fear. What would my friends think? What will my family think? What will happen if I follow this Yeshua, this Jesus, this Messianic Messiah? What will happen to my life? And fear had gripped me. And then when I was 18 and a half years old, I made the plunge to get out of my boat, my boat of tradition, my boat of apathy, my boat of religious legalism. It's hard to take a risk, isn't it? It's hard to get out of the boat. It's hard to get out, especially when you're comfortable in that boat. I got a friend right now, he's in a, he's in a high-paying job, and he's miserable in life. He says, David, I hate it. So what's what's taking what's 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 wrong? He says, I just I just hate the job. He said, I'm making a lot of money, but I hate it. What's keeping you from getting out? I don't know. I know. You know. Whatever boat you're in, your fear will tell you. It will talk to you. It will communicate with you because fear is a powerful thing. So this morning, I'm asking you to consider what boat you're in that you might need to get out of. Maybe it it is that you're in debt financially, and that's the boat you need to get out of. Maybe there's a relationship between you and a friend that has gone sour and broken. Maybe your marriage needs an upgrade, significant upgrade. You know, in 1857, a man by the name of Blondin had done something that no one had ever done before, not once, not twice, but seven times. Blondin hung a steel cable from the American side to the Canadian side over Niagara Falls. I've been there multiple times. I love the story. I read about it all the time. And Blondin one time walked across by himself. One time he walked across with a wheelbarrow with sand in it. One time he walked with a stove attached to his body in which he stopped and cooked an egg and ate it and then continued. But the seventh and last time, the most brilliant of his, of his adventures was before 100,000 people. And he stood before the audience and he said, how many of you believe that I, the great Blondin, can walk across Niagara Falls? And they started chanting, we believe, we believe, we believe in you, Blondin. He said, how many of you believe I can put a man on my shoulders and walk him across? And they started chanting, Blondin, Blondin, Blondin. He said, do I have any volunteers? <laughs> Dead silent. Then a voice in the very, very back said, pardon me, I'll do it. 
turned out to be Kermit the Frog. Actually, it turned out to be his manager. And for the next five hours, Blondin tiptoed across Niagara Falls with this man on his shoulders. Twice the man got off his shoulders. People thought he was doing it just because he was too heavy, but Blondin was doing it to show off. See, there was 99,999 people that were shouting, we believe, we believe, we believe in you, Blondin. But how many believed that day? Just one. See, we have, we have this idea in America that Christianity belief is mental, and it can be, but it's also emotional, and it's also heart, in which you not only use your mind, but you use your emotions, and then you, with your will, you plunge in. And that's what getting out of the boat means. Matthew 14 contains this amazing story of a, of a young Talmudine, a young Jewish follower of Yeshua Jesus to get out of the boat. What kept him for so long, and what kept those other guys fear? So let me ask you this morning, are you fear of risking, or are you fearful of risking and seeing it fail? You know, I actually believe failure can help, help us. Michael Jordan once said this, he says, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot, and I missed. I can accept failure. Everyone fails at something, but I cannot accept not trying. I've failed over and over and over in my life, and that's why I succeed. Maybe the worst failure at all is to not get out of the boat at all. So this morning, what boat are you in? Is there not something maybe deep inside that resonates where Jesus says to Peter, be not afraid, take courage, it is I. And so as he gets out and he starts walking on the water, there's something inside the other 11 are saying, I could do that. We could do that. What's keeping us? Fear. In 2000, uh, our child was born, and our second child, and we had gone many years, 17 years exact. We had one child, Rachel, and we wanted more, but we could not get pregnant. And on December 31st, 1999, I was at the gym on the treadmill, and my wife came in, and she looked kind of, she had a kind of an interesting look on her face, and she was like, come here, come here. I was like, just a second. And she said, come here, come here, come here. I need you. And I was like, just a second. I'm trying to finish up my workout, right? She said, come here. Come. You don't tell my wife no three times, okay? <laughs> any guys, any men have wives like that? You just, you just, don't, just don't. So I got off and I said, what's happening? She, I, she goes, I got to talk to you. I said, all right, what's going on? She goes, I'm pregnant. Oh, uh, wow. Who's the daddy? <laughs> oh, it's me. Oh, okay. So anyway, long story short, we, we have a great pregnancy. Actually, Rhonda had a great pregnancy. Andrew was born August 9th, 2000. And about 15 hours later, they came in to tell us Andrew had Down syndrome. And I didn't know what Down syndrome was. I did not. And we fell apart. It just didn't sound good, and I didn't know what it was. Of course, I started to research it. There was a doctor, John Downs, who discovered this disorder it's called trisomy 21. It means they have an extra chromosome. Robbie got to meet Andrew and hang out with Andrew yesterday at the museum. It was a tough 30, 30 days for Rhonda and I. I think we cried every day. And I'd say but around day, day 40, it was as if the Holy Spirit was saying, David, this kid is going to teach you more 
than you will ever teach him. I want you to start loving this boy, and you're going to find out something very powerful. He's going to love you more than you can ever imagine. And when Andrew was two years old, he stopped walking. Something weird happened, and we don't know. And I was going to speak at an event, and my wife called me on my cell, and she said, Andrew's not walking. What should we do? What should I do? I said, get him to our pediatrician if, if you can today. And so she did, and they ended up doing some tests. And Andrew went about 48 hours where he could not move, and we didn't know what was going on. And I just happened to go into the Scriptures looking for the word walk, W-A-L-K, and discovered it was mentioned in the Scriptures 40 times. Of course, I looked up the definition. Walk means progress, movement, going forward. And I walked into one of my classes, and I started to cry. And a bunch of my students, about 15 of them, they just came up, and they just kind of gathered around me. It was really a powerful moment. And they just put their hands on me, and they prayed for Andrew, that God would do something miraculous. I left class. I was driving home. My cell phone rings. My wife is sobbing on the phone. Andrew is walking again. I don't know what happened, but God must have done some kind of miracle. And as I think about that story, and I think about me and my life and your life, are you walking? Are you taking steps? Are you getting out of your boat? Are you walking towards Jesus so He can transform your life? Transformation never happens quickly. It's always slow. But when you look back, it's always beautiful. What kind of boat are you in today? What fear has got you? Would you today consider doing three things? Personally risk-taking. What's the thing you can do personally? Family-wise, what can you do that's out of the boat? And then the world that God has put you in to make an impact, to influence you whether it's your neighborhood or your job, would you consider getting out of your boat and making a difference for Jesus Christ? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.